0: scripture reading this morning is from Isaiah eleven one through 5, and it reads, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. This is the word of the Lord. This is the fifth sermon in the Arrow Cross series that uh, we're going through leading up to... Uh, Christmas, and it's the different names of God found in the book of Isaiah, and we've been learning the last few weeks why those matter to Isaiah, and then ultimately why those matter to us. Uh, we're going to see this morning and, um, in this text that uh, we find hope, but it's just hope that happens to be found somewhere that's unexpected. Um, I don't know how many of you follow football or follow the NFL, but about eight yeah, eight years ago, there was a Super Bowl, and that Super Bowl was between the New England Patriots and the New York Giants. Um, coming into that game, the New England Patriots were on the brink of doing something that's only been done once in NFL history, and that's go undefeated for an entire season. They were 18-0 two games into the, the postseason, and uh, they'd gone 16-0 over the regular season, and they're, they're undefeated, coming into the Super Bowl as just the heavy, heavy favorites. The New York Giants, on the other hand, had lost two games at the start of that season and barely made their way into the playoffs as a wild card team, which just means they, they barely got in. They were one of the lower teams. Well, in that in that game, it's kind of going back and forth, and it's in the fourth quarter. New England has the ball. New England is down 10 to 7. And uh, Tom Brady, great quarterback, Hooks up with uh, Randy Moss on a long touchdown pass. They go up 14 to 10. About two and a half or so minutes left. They go up 14 to 10. Um, there's, at, the, at this point, maybe um, about a minute and a half left. The, the New York Giants get the ball. They're driving downfield. They make it to midfield. It's third down with five yards to go. They, uh, Eli Manning um, gets the ball, drops back and he's, he's about to get sacked in the backfield. He's about to get tackled. I don't know how many of you know much about football, but typically quarterbacks um, who are kind of smaller guys. If they get hit by a defensive lineman or a linebacker, what happens? They go down. Typically, you can just like hit them on the shoulder, and they seem to go down. But Eli Manning drops back, and he is in the grasp of three of New England's best defenders. Like he, they, They've got him. Somehow, like miraculously, he rolls out of that and he, he takes, he runs to his right. They grab onto his jersey. He breaks away from that. And when he does, he finally heaves up this, what in the world are you doing kind of pass right in the middle of the field. And out of nowhere, out of nowhere, this man jumps up. His name is, we'll find out later because we didn't know it. His name was David Tyree, jumps up, grabs the ball. When he does, his right hand gets put off the football. When he does, he pins the ball to his helmet. Falls to the ground, holds on to the football. The Giants get a first down. Four plays later, they score a touchdown to end up winning Super Bowl Forty Two. Now, what made that play so amazing are a lot of things. One, Eli Manning uh, you know, almost gets tackled, and that was uh, miraculous. But what made it so amazing is when he threw that ball up and, and David Tyree pins the ball to his helmet, I guarantee you there might be less than five of you in here who have ever heard that name. David Tyree. Why is that? Because that during that entire season, NFL season is 16 games. He caught four passes. All right. And I don't know if you know much about the league, but that's not production. Okay. Four passes over 16 games. That's one. He, he had averaged like 15 yards per catch. So he had like, or maybe a little more than that. He had like 69 or 70 yards for the season. So whenever you're thinking about, man, who are we going to go to whenever it's, the time, it's game time and like it's, it's, it's crunch time, who do we go to? You wouldn't have thought of David Tyree, but instead, a hope for the New York Giants came out of nowhere. It was so unexpected, not only did he catch it, he pinned it against his helmet, and that's been referred to now as the helmet catch, which is probably one of the greatest plays in NFL history. But when the New York Giants were at a place of like, hey, we don't know what's going to happen. Eli Manning's about to get sacked in the backfield, and then he just heaves the ball up in the air. Hope, you could say, came out of nowhere. Hope was unexpected. And we see this morning that unexpected hope only comes when you're desperate. Because to be looking for hope means that you're at a place of hopelessness. To be looking for hope means that you're searching for it. And oftentimes when you're desperate and you're looking for hope, it comes to you, not the place that you you think you'll find it, but at a place that you're not even looking for. Isaiah, in our passage this morning, Isaiah chapter 11, he's prophesying, he's talking about a time that will happen some hundred years after he's prophesying. So when you read these words, what he's talking about it's something that'll happen a hundred or so years after this, and it's called the Babylonian captivity. See, Assyria had already taken over the northern kingdom of Israel, but Isaiah's saying there's going to be a time when there's going to be no more kingdom in Judah. There'll be no more kings sitting on the throne. For us, we say, no big deal. What's the big deal about a king? Well, The reason it's a big deal is because we have to look back, not just in this passage, but look back at why having a king, for Judah, and Israel was such a big deal. See, Judah, in the time of Samuel, or the the nation of Israel, thought that a king would bring them everything they'd ever hoped for. They thought a king would give them what they desired most. And we find that in 1 Samuel 7 and 8. Isaiah's prophesying in Isaiah about a time when they would have no king. And the reason that's left them hopeless is because of 1 Samuel 7 and 8. If you look at 1 Samuel 7, you realize that Samuel is God's prophet. And he's, he, he speaks to the Israelites directly from God. He speaks to them God's word. And um, they go and they have just forsaken some of their idols. And they're going to a little place in a valley called Mizpah. All right, they're they're going there, they go down there, what they're doing down there is they're going to go pray, and they're going to forsake their idols, and they're going to give their hearts back over to the Lord, and all is going to be well. Well, they go down there to do that, but what happens is the Philistines, the Israelites, one of their enemies, they find out that Israel is going to be down in this valley with no protection, so what do they decide to do? They say, "We're we're going to fly in, and we're going to defeat them, and finally beat them once and for all. So um, the Israelites are down there worshiping the Lord and they look up and they see the Philistines up on this hill and they realize we're about to be defeated. So they look at Samuel and they say, hey, you're, you're our man before God. We need you to pray a little harder, man. We need you to talk to God a little bit more. So he takes a lamb and he does. And when he goes and he takes that lamb, he takes it and he, he offers it as a burnt offering and he sacrifices that lamb. And when he does, the Bible says that God made a mighty thundering sound. And when he does, the Philistines got thrown into confusion and the Israelites go, and they defeat them. And then all is well. Israelites have just defeated uh, the Philistines in a battle that wasn't won because of their military might. It was won because God made provision for them. But then, if we stopped there, we we wouldn't get to the point that we're trying to make. Uh, Next comes chapter 8. And it's interesting that this is some, some years later, this didn't just happen right after this. is some years later. But the writer of 1 Samuel decided to put this in right after God had made huge provision for them. Chapter 8, Samuel's now a little older. And the elders of Israel come to him and they say, Samuel, you know, we realize you got some gray hair and all. You're not going to be a prophet for much longer. Um, so since you're not going to be a prophet, we want you to do something for us. We want you to appoint us a king we want a king, Samuel. We want to be like every other nation, the Bible says. The Israelites look at Samuel and say, we want to be like everybody else. We want a king. What's that king going to do? He's going to provide for them military might. He's going to provide for them economical security. He's going to do so many things, at least they think. So Samuel looks at those guys and he says, hey, I I don't think that's such a good idea. I don't, think, I don't think we need a king. I know I'm old and, and, and I'm, I'm about, to, about to go on, but I don't think we need a king. And, and they said, no, we want a king. So he says, let me go pray and I'll ask God his opinion on this. So when he goes and he asks God, he hears something that he probably didn't expect to hear. God says, give them a king. Give them a king, Samuel. For verse seven, in first Samuel eight says, God says to Samuel, they have not rejected you, Samuel, but they have rejected me from being king over them. God says, look, I brought them out of Egypt. I, I, I defeated um, the battle. I, I won the battle at Jericho for them whenever they didn't have an army worthwhile. Uh, we did some miraculous stuff, and I defeated, uh, uh, I defeated Jericho there, and I've just defeated the Philistines, and I've done all these great things, and they still want a king. So God looks at Samuel and says, go back or tells him. He says, go back and tell him they can have a king. Samuel doesn't really like that so much. So uh, he, he goes and he tries to come up with a plan. And he's like, hey, he goes back to the Israelites and he says, look, um, a king, you don't want a king because he's going to tax you. Um, he's going. He's got the IRS in his back pocket. You don't want that, you know. Uh, he's got. Um, he's going to take a tenth of your flocks. He's going to take some of your people to be slaves. Um, he's going to. He's going to take things from you, and you're not going to like that. And on the day when you cry out to God, God's not going to answer. And you would think, after all the years that, I, that that Samuel has prophesied and spoken to them on behalf of God, they would listen. But they say, no. They said, no. We we want a king. Samuel, we don't care what God just said. We want a king who will do for us what we hope he can do. The people say, we want a king who can lead us into battle, who can fight our battles for us and do things that we think God can't. I read this week and, and like everything inside of me just wanted to be like, you dumb Israelites, like you don't know what you're doing, you're crazy, until I, I realized, and we'll look at it in just a moment, like, that's often, that was oft, that's often me. Look back on the things that God has done and, and how he has not only saved me, but how he has blessed uh, my life, not with things that he's given me, but just with his presence and, and, and often the many things that he's done, and yet I still look for other things rather than him. And the Israelites are doing the same thing. You see, what they had done, they thought a king would give them something that God could not. Having a king's not a, not a big deal. But they placed all of their hope, they placed all of their stock, they thought that this, having this one king appointed to them would provide for them fulfillment, security, satisfaction, and all the things that they apparently thought God couldn't. See, having a king's not a, a big deal, but the deal is they had made God second best. They had made God second desired. See, so they wanted a king instead of God. They wanted something else in his place. What do we call this? We call this idolatry. When 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 something that should be ruling our heart, which is God, is, is taken off the throne and we put something else there and the Israelites after all that God had done for them, said, we don't want you, we don't think you can give to us what we want, so we want a king because we think he can. And the reason why that's a big deal in our passage is because we see that Isaiah is prophesying in chapter 11 that there's now a time in about 100 years where there's gonna be no more kingdom. Everything the Israelites had hoped that a king could do for them is now Done. There's going to be no more king. There's going to be no more kingdom. And how in the world can Israel be fulfilled if they put all of their hope, all of their stock, in trusting in a king to give them something? So we're in the time of the Babylonian captivity that Isaiah is prophesying about. And there's a feeling of hopelessness, there's a feeling of desperation. Because they had hoped that a king would bring them something that he couldn't. So if we take that from a king to our own lives, let me ask you this this morning. What are you doing? Or is there something, rather than what you're doing, is there something you're placing your joy or your hope in other than God? Maybe maybe it's your marriage. And you thought, man, when I get married all of my desires, all of my needs, everything that I've ever wanted in life, it, it's gonna be met. And like, I'm not gonna have any lack because that spouse is gonna provide for me everything that I desire. But what's happening is you, you're, you're, you're left with gaping holes of unfulfilled joy because you placed all your stock on that spouse. Not only are you left feeling incomplete, you're drowning them because you're placing um, this burden that only God can carry on their shoulders. Maybe instead of just marriage, it's a romantic relationship. You think that if you get that person, that, like that perfect person, like there really is one, if you get that perfect person, they're, they're, they're gonna make my dreams come true. And your hope and desire is just to find that one person and you're placing all of your hope in finding one perfect person. Maybe it's your job, and you feel that that next raise or that next promotion will finally give you this feeling of success and fulfillment and achievement and maybe give you the the monetary status that you've been looking for. So all of your hope is in doing whatever you've got to do to make sure that you get a promotion or to make sure that you achieve. For others of you, many times this is with teenagers, but it can be with everybody. It's approval and acceptance. You desire the approval and acceptance from, any, from at least one person or a group of people. You desire that so much that you're willing to say or do anything because you know that once you get accepted by that person or by those people, life will finally be worth living. And we do that every day. And what that's called is idolatry. What all these have in common is it's placing a desire that only God can fulfill onto something else and worshiping that one thing by doing whatever we've got to do to have it, because we think it's going to bring us something God can't. I don't know why I'm picking on the the New England Patriots this morning, but Tom Brady, their quarterback, you know, really successful. At the time, um, a few years ago, he was in an interview with 60 Minutes. Steve Croft was the man interviewing him, and he was, he was in an interview, and at the time he only had three Super Bowl rings, and he was making just a, you know, like a shabby $40 million a year, and like um, he, he had everything, honestly, by the world standards you could ever want. Three Super Bowl rings, um, supermodel, girlfriend, I think she might have been his wife at that point, $40 million a year, people admired him, people loved him, and he was answering all these questions, and finally he looked at the interviewer and he said, man, I got a question for you. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings, and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, "Hey, man, this is what it's all about. I've reached my goal, my dream, my life." But me, I think there's got to be something more than this. I mean, this isn't, can't be, all that is cracked up to be. And Croft looked at him and said, well, "What do you think the answer is, Tom?" He says, "I wish I knew." I love playing football, and I love being quarterback for this team, but at the same time, I I think there are a lot of other parts of me that I'm trying to find out. In the midst of all that, um, he actually just issues some great wisdom. Why? Because here's a man who has everything by the world standards you could ever ask for. Fans that love him. A lot of fans hate him too, but fans that love him. People that chant his name. So much money. And he understands that wealth... Fame, power, pleasure, and accomplishment don't provide the ultimate prize. Essentially, he's asking the questions, what have these gods done for me? What have these idols, what have they done for me? I've got them, but I still feel like there's something more. What has this done for me? You see, that's what idols, that's what they do. They promise that if you finally reach this point, you'll have everything you desire. But when you get to that point, there's this drive inside of you that says, no, there's got to be something more. Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, says that in ancient times, we often read about uh, tribes and people who built idols and worship them, built man-made idols and, and even worship uh, uh, God-made images. And, and he says, you know, he says, we often look at those people and say, those people are very primitive, Who would build an idol and worship it? And that may seem primitive. What he says is true. What we've done is actually taken the same idols and just sophisticated them. We've taken idols uh, such as pleasure. And instead of like the Ephesians, who would worship the goddess Diana by uh, going into the temple of Diana, and they would have these mass orgies, and they would give up their bodies to each other because they were hoping that sometime within that time they would have this blessing and fulfillment from this God that promised to provide. That, we look at that and we say, that, that seems so primitive, but that's no different than the single person who is willing to uh, have sex with their partner because they feel like, hey, this person will, will give me this acceptance and this joy and this security that I'm looking for. So I'm willing to do whatever I've got to do to make sure that that person will give me that. Or maybe we look at the prophets of Baal and we say like, man, those people were crazy. They're walking around a fire, cutting themselves, doing all this crazy stuff because they wanted uh, Baal to provide for them and give them provision and make sure they were taken care of. But then we look at uh, people who maybe cut corners at work, maybe, maybe, maybe cheat just a little bit in an area of their job so they can make sure that they look a little bit better. And that maybe um, if they they just do this one thing at their job, even though it kind of goes against what they know to be true and what they know to be right, if they just do that, they'll finally have, have fulfillment and security and satisfaction. It's no different than the prophets of Baal. You see, Keller's right when he says, we've sophisticated those idols and those gods. He makes this statement in his book that says an idol is one of those things that if I have that, Then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. There's another statement. An idol is anything that you feel if you had, life would be complete. Or anything that if you lost would make life hardly worth living. An idol is anything that you think, man, if I can get that, If I can can finally make it to that point, my life will finally be worthwhile. Or you know, whenever you think about, maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's your kids, maybe it's um, something in your life when you think, man, if I lost that, my life would be done. My life would be over. That's a clear sign that there is an idol. Something that's sitting on the throne of your heart that only Jesus is supposed to sit there. That's a clear sign that, that there's an idol in your life. And the Israelites had that. They thought a king would bring them security and joy and satisfaction and prosperity. But now they're left feeling hopeless. They're left feeling hopeless because what they placed all their stock in hasn't hasn't fulfilled them. But ultimately, ultimately this passage to get us to the point of where this passage is, this passage is not about feeling hopeless. Isaiah's prophesying about hopelessness, but he's prophesying about hope. He's prophesying to encourage us, to show us that there is hope that is to come. And where does he say that hope will come from? Verse 1, Isaiah chapter 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. All right, now when you first read that, I don't know if that rings like these bells of encouragement and hope. You know, like I read that this week and you don't know how many times. I looked at my Bible and said, Isaiah, what are you, what are you saying, man? Like, Alan Michael would be sitting over there looking at me like, why are you talking to yourself? You know, I'd be reading there, I'm like, what, what are you trying to say? But, but it, it finally began to make sense. What Isaiah is saying is there's going to come forth a shoot from a stump. Now, I don't know much about like horticulture or anything like that, but I do know this, that if you're walking through a forest and you see these massive oak trees or these, these maples that have this huge canopy and you see that and... <clears throat> then there's like this little stump that's been cut down. Chances are you don't notice the stump. You notice the huge trees. I, I've never had an opportunity but hope to one day go to the redwood forest. I would love to see those trees. But I imagine when you're sitting there and you're looking or standing there and you're looking at a, at a, at a massive red, redwood that just shoots up into the sky and is massive around the base, that you don't Look at that redwood and then look and say, Oh, that's a beautiful stump. Man, that's lovely. No, what do you do? You go sit on that stump while you look at the redwood. A stump? What 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 is Isaiah trying to say when he's talking about a stump? He's saying um, that a stump often goes unnoticed. It's something that, that you don't particularly see. A stump is something that looks dead and looks desolate. But what happens if that stump has roots? it'll eventually grow back. And how will it grow back? It won't grow back just all of a sudden, bam, being a tall tree. No, it says it has these these little shoots or these little sprouts that come up from the stump and eventually those sprouts turn into branches. And those branches will one day turn into this massive tree. So when Isaiah looks and he says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. What's he saying? He's saying, there's a time, Judah, when everything's going to look hopeless. When you have nothing. When you have no king. When you have nothing to hope for. But there's a stump. The stump is a metaphor uh, speaking of ancestry and speaking of someone who will come later. He says there's this stump. And although it looks desolate, it looks like there could be nothing come from that stump there's going to be. And see, Jesse is the father of David. We know David to be the the greatest king in all of Israel. But Isaiah doesn't say, hey, there'll be somebody come from the line of David. Why? Because he's wanting Israel and Judah to know, hey, there's no hope for a king right now. But one day, one day, Although you look like a stump right now, desolate compared to the other nations who look like these massive trees. Although you look like a stump and you look like there's no hope, one day there will be hope. And that hope will come in the form of a branch. So when we read this passage and it says a branch from the stump of Jesse will bear fruit, the branch equals a future hope or a king. So when Isaiah is prophesying in this passage and he's speaking of a branch, he says there's gonna be a new branch who is unlike any other because as verse two tells us, this new branch will be perfect. You see, we look back at the kings in Israel's past, Saul, he had might, he was a big man. David had counsel. Solomon had wisdom. But there was also a time when they lost all those and when they had nothing to bring. But this new branch, this new king, will have all perfect characteristics. This branch is unlike any other because he will judge not based on appearance, but from the heart. This uh, Kings in that time often, just by their natural faculties, look and, and, uh, and make judgments based on what they see or smell or hear. So people could go in front of the king and and make lip service and tell the king how good he was and if that king didn't pick up on it, guess what? He just thought that person really loved him but that person really might have been his enemy. This new branch isn't about lip service. This new branch is able to judge someone's heart and discern who they really are. This new branch is unlike any other because he'll help the poor. Kings in, in the time of Isaiah often had a desire to help the poor But then uh, the culturally inclined people would come to the king and say, look, we need you to do a favor for us. And they would offer money or they would offer land or they would offer something. So the king, who might have had good intentions to help people who needed it, often were bribed and swayed. But this new branch, this new king, is coming to help the poor, to help the needy, to help people who need him. This new branch is unlike any other because his words, unlike kings kings of old, have the power to condemn and the power to give life. This new branch is unlike any other because everything, everything he says is dependable and true, and he came to deliver. So when we read this passage and we see that there's a a shoot that'll come from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, who's Isaiah talking about? He's talking about none other than Jesus, who would eventually come one day to unexpected parents, born in a, in a place that nobody would expect, Bethlehem, live in a town, Nazareth, that even one of his own disciples said, What good can come out of Nazareth? Jesus would come to this earth and be so unexpected because everybody expected a king to ride in with, with, a, with some mighty warriors and take over a nation. Isaiah is saying, No, 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 this king's going to be different. Because this king didn't just come to establish a nation. This king came to save you and establish his spirit in your heart. You see, if we read uh, Matthew and Luke, the genealogies that are in there, Luke dates his genealogy all the way back to Adam, and Matthew dates his all the way back to Abraham. We see that that David is somewhere in the middle in there, and David's sons would eventually have have sons, and those sons would have sons, and those sons would have sons. And even though the kingship was over, the ancestry wasn't. Eventually, we see that through David's line, through the stump of Jesse, through Jesse's line, there would be a king, and he would be born amongst a bunch of animals, to a a lowly father, a teenage mother. But again, this king will be so different. Because the Spirit of God at Jesus' baptism rested upon him when the heavens opened and the Spirit descended on him like a dove, and God the Father said, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. Colossians 1 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By him and through him, all things are created. And in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This new king isn't just this man who can live for just a a few short years and maybe set up a kingdom. This new king sets up a forever time when he is reigning. And we look and see in Revelation that there'll be a time when Jesus comes back. And when he does, he's setting up his kingdom to reign forever. And Isaiah called it. Back in chapter 11, When he says this new branch, this new king will be unlike any other, unlike one that you could expect. Why? Because he's able to look at your heart and know who you really are. And for some of you, that might honestly scare the life out of you. And maybe it should. But at the same time, that's also a beautiful picture because if Jesus, who can really look in to see who you are And he can judge your heart's desires. He's not going to look and say, look, you've been so bad that I I, I can't even stand to be with you. No, what what does he do? He came and he died for you. We see that in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. Isaiah is talking about this king who would come. And he says this king, starting in verse 3. Was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. This is Jesus. This is talking about Jesus being crucified on the cross. But this happened some 700 years before it would ever happen. He was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, our wrongdoings. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. Because of Jesus' punishment, we are are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened his mouth, opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that goes before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, Stricken. For the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, Jesus had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. Verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Let me read that again. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Why would God crush his only son whenever it was us that deserved it? Because he loved you and he loved me so much that he did not want us to suffer punishment. So he punished his own son in our place so that we could be saved. We see that in verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. What's that saying? That's saying that Jesus is the righteous one. Yet... Through him, many are accounted righteous because he took your shame. He took your sin. He took your idolatry. He took everything that you've ever done that was wrong. And the guilt and the shame that you've ever felt, and and, and I've heard this said before, that sometimes it's hard enough to just bear guilt for something we've done, but take all the guilt and shame that that you've ever felt And compress it into one moment and lay that on top of your shoulders. Like, feel that. Like, that would probably be enough to crush us. The anxiety, the fear that you've ever felt, that would be enough to probably make us pass out. Now, take that and multiply it times billions of people, and that's what Jesus felt. And instead of saying, God, like, I'm not going to do this, it says that he was led to the cross without opening his mouth. Because he loves you and he wanted to give you hope so much so because he understands that we are going to place our hope in something else. We're going to place our hope in, in status. We're going to place our hope in, in money. We're going to place our hope in power. We're going to place our hope in success. And Jesus and, and Isaiah's prophesying, and Jesus has come to say, look, you can place your hope in all those things, but they will eventually leave you high and dry. There's only one person that can give you hope, give you fulfillment, give you satisfaction. And Isaiah says that his name is Jesus. So what does this mean for us, for, for, for some of you in here this morning? God has revealed already Something in your heart, in your life, that sits on the throne of your heart, that's not him. You have something in your life that you're putting your hope, your your, your fulfillment, your joy, your, you have something in your life that you're putting that in, and it's not Jesus. And you're a follower of Christ, you know him, but you've uh, uh, placed something else there and said, hey, like God I know you saved me and I know you're good but I think there's something else that can bring me what I'm looking for other than you and he's saying this morning no actually there's not just like Israel had no hope because they placed all their hope in a king to bring them and eventually that kingdom ran out but there was a king who would come onto the scene in the first century and now he'll reign forever and his name's Jesus Jesus is saying to you hey I'm the one that sits here I'm the one that's here I'm the one that all your desire and all your hope should be placed in because the Bible says he will never leave you nor forsake you. The Bible says there's never a time that he's gonna walk away from you. Instead, he'll be with you always. And I wish that I could tell you like a magic formula that if, if you know, hey, there's something in my life that I've put right here instead of Christ, I wish I could tell you a magic formula that you could just say this prayer and it would be done, but it just takes like daily discipline to know, hey, I put my hope and my value in something other than Jesus, but today I'm not. Because I'm accepted and loved by Jesus. He's given me everything that I've ever needed. He's given me what I, what I really want. So because of that, I'm not placing my hope and my value in anybody or anything else. And it's a daily discipline. For others of you sitting here this morning, you don't know Jesus. Like by his mouth, verse four says, the wicked are judged. You will one day be judged for the wrongs that you have done. That judgment is being cast away from God. Never to be with Him, never to experience peace, never to experience joy, never to experience fulfillment. But today you can experience joy, you can experience fulfillment, you can experience peace if you just trust in what He's done for you on the cross. When He died, He died in your place and for your sin. And all He's doing is saying, Look, I want you to come. I will forgive you that's my desire because i love you so much all you've got to do is come and embrace me accept me trust in me and that's what jesus is calling some of you to do this morning so if you bow your head i want to close in a word of prayer and the team's going to come and they're going to lead us in a in a worship song but maybe this morning is a time for you if you are If God has revealed you this morning things in in your life that, you know, you place before him and and things that bring you value other than him, it's time of confession. Or maybe it's a time that you pray and ask God to reveal some of those or reveal what that may be or or strengthen you so that that won't happen anymore. For others of you this morning, you need to accept Christ. You can strive after so many other things in life, but they're all going to leave you hanging. But Jesus never will because he hung on a cross for you.